instead of trying to jam the square peg into the round hole, you've made those accommodations and everybody is aware of it. So you don't have anybody who's like, oh, I didn't even know we had a policy about that. Or I had no idea. Everybody's working together in this ecosystem where the business is doing and what it needs to do to survive. And the privacy and security is working sympathetically with the business practice. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Higher Ground, Higher Ground is a technology company whose mission is to bridge the wealth gap through access to procurement opportunities. Higher Ground is making the enterprise ecosystem more viable, profitable, and competitive by clearing the path for minority-led, women-led, LGBT-led, and veteran-led small businesses to contribute to the global economy as suppliers to enterprise organizations. For more information on getting started, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E-G-R-O-U-N-D.io. Now on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Matt Colicello, in for Adam Moore and Chloe Guidry-Reed. In today's episode, we're joined again by Rebecca Rakowski, co-founder and managing partner at Xpan Law Partners. As an experienced litigator, Rebecca has handled hundreds of matters in state and federal courts and skillfully manages the intersection of state, federal, and international regulations that affect the transfer, storage, and collection of data to aggressively mitigate her clients' litigation risks. A month or so ago, we released an interview with Rebecca on cybersecurity, its legal dimensions, and how it's never too soon for small businesses to start thinking about. We'll put a link to that episode in the description of this one. We got so much interest in that last episode from small business owners that we decided we need to take the conversation further covering data privacy and why it too is critically important for small businesses. According to a report by Verizon that we'll also link in the description, 46% of all cyber breaches impact small businesses with fewer than 1,000 employees. And 80% of small businesses have customer data that could be compromised in an attack. So this is a vitally important topic with an in-demand expert here to talk with us about it. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Matt. It's great to be here. So happy to have you back. So for, for people, and actually I'll say for people like me who don't necessarily know that much about what data privacy is, can you talk about like what is data privacy and why is it something that small businesses need to be thinking about? Sure. So data privacy is a little different than data security, although you can't have one without the other. I won't sing the song. Okay. But privacy is is interesting because the way we view privacy as, as Americans is a little different than we view it, um, the way it's viewed internationally. Okay. So people think they have this inherent right to privacy, right? And from a criminal standpoint, right, the police can't come knock on your door and bust in without a warrant and things like that. So there is, in that context, a, pri- a right to privacy in your own home and a right to privacy in certain contexts. But the word privacy is actually not written into the U.S. Constitution, not once. It doesn't say privacy. So 
in a lot of time, a lot of times what's happened is the courts have interpreted this right to privacy into the Constitution and not getting political here at all. But with the Dobbs decision, that kind of backtracked because Roe versus Wade was based on this implicit right to privacy within the U.S. Constitution. The Supreme Court recently in Dobbs said that's not a basis. There, there is no privacy right there. And so privacy professionals have kind of gotten a little shaken up. So in the U.S., there's no federal privacy right except in very limited circumstances like healthcare, right? HIPAA. Everybody knows HIPAA. It's, it's the thing most people are familiar with. Um, so you have a privacy, a right to privacy to your medical information. If you're a child, you have a privacy right on when you're about ads that can come to you online. Um, I'm watering down the version. I'm sure you don't want me to get into the statutes here with COPA. And then you have educational privacy under FERPA. And you have financial right to privacy under GLEBA, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. But other than that, no general right to privacy. So privacy is defined very differently because it, we don't have one in the what I will call the civil context versus the criminal context, which we were. I was. I, that's what I was talking about. I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of went off on a tangent there, but I tend to do that. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, no, 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 no. That's really, really good legal context, um, and I am following. So. In that case, like, so we don't basically have any guaranteed right to having our data be private. That's right. So there are, like I said, in limited contexts, like healthcare, right? You can't, you can't, a doctor just can't go out there and start spouting off about your, uh, about your medical condition and stuff like that. But generally, there is no right to privacy at the federal level, right? The federal government. So in our country, we have two tier legal system. There is the state level and then the federal level. So at the federal level, no general right to privacy. Some states have started to adopt privacy laws like California, Connecticut, Virginia, Utah, and Colorado. There, they've created this right to privacy. And they've said inherent in that right to privacy, individuals have certain rights to their data, to information that is being collected about them. So residents of those states have state privacy protections. I happen to not live in one of those states. So I don't have any of those privacy protections. So you have to be a resident of those states to have that kind of overarching privacy protection. So, okay. So if I'm a small business and I am collecting data, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, an internet-based business and I'm collecting some amount of data about my clients and customers. Right. If I'm in one of those states, how do my practices have to differ based on whether I'm in one of those states where a certain level of privacy is guaranteed and where in states where that that guarantee doesn't exist? So very interesting question, Matt. So you don't actually have to be physically located in that state for that law to apply to you. So I don't have to be a California-based business. I don't have to be a Connecticut-based business. All I have to be doing is collecting data, personal data as defined by those individual state statutes, on those residents of those states. So if I am a tech company, for example, big, small, or otherwise, and I am collecting information on resident of, of people, you know, individuals from all 50 states, I have to analyze whether those privacy laws are going to apply to me. Because I'm operating in 50 states, they could apply, they may not apply. It depends on where the data subject lives. It depends on what I do with that data. For example, almost all of the laws, I think all of them, say if I, I sell that data, if I'm a data broker, then the law automatically applies. 
if I make a certain threshold of money. So they they tried to carve out some small businesses, but the problem is a lot of small businesses transact in data, right? That's their mm-hmm. businesses. They're collecting right. information. So once they start to hit these numbers of, of residents in those states, that law kicks in and it, and it applies to them. So it's very complicated. And, you know, it's difficult for attorneys of, you know, who've been practicing for long periods of time to understand, let alone small businesses who are, who are like, well, does this, do I need to worry about this? And the other thing is not to apply to the ointment, which lawyers tend to do anyway, (laughs) a lot of internet businesses sell globally, right? They're not, they're not limited to just the United States. I mean, that's the beauty of a global economy. And it's the beauty of, of the, the internet, you know, you can reach people in other countries in those other parts of the world, like Europe, like Asia, Australia, the UK, Brazil, they have what would we would consider the equivalent of a federal privacy law. So if you're doing business in those jurisdictions and collecting data on those data subjects, you may be subject to those laws as well. So it it's complicated and it's I feel bad for small for businesses who have to to deal with these issues because they're not easily easy to do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. And I, and I really am empathizing right now with small business owners who are collecting data from people in all 50 states and potentially from customers and clients abroad where they're, where the laws are different. Is there a practice that you recommend to set up from the start that is tracking the location of customers and flagging, like, here's what you need to do when you've reached this threshold, according to this state or international law about what you're allowed to do with this data and how it has to be protected. Yeah. First of all, I would say mapping your data right from jump is really important. Small business, that's not normally what they're worried about. They're like, they're just worried about like, can I make this business fly? Can I, you know, is it viable? Right. We need to make money. We need to pay ourselves, that kind of stuff. But if you run afoul of these laws, you can quickly go out of business. So one thing is track your data, understand what you're collecting. Don't over collect, right? We are by nature data hoarders. We love data. We're like, oh, give me more, give me more, give me more. And let me keep it forever. I can't tell you how many times I work with a client and I'm like, okay, you're collecting this. Why are you collecting it? And they all kind of look at each other dumbfounded. They're like, well, first of all, we didn't even know we were collecting that. And second of all, we have no idea why we we don't need it. And I'm like, then why are you keeping it? And they're like, well, just in case. No, no, no. There is no just in case in privacy law. So one is know your data. Two is don't over collect. And three is if you, you're worried about this. And frankly, all businesses who collect data should be worried about these laws. I would highly recommend you, you engage a, a privacy professional, an attorney who practices in the area of data privacy to to look at it and and evaluate whether you are in fact what I call triggering one of these laws. Okay. I'm air quoting. I know I always do. I always like assume people can see. That. <laughs> so I'm air quoting triggering, right? Like if those laws apply to the data you're collecting, because different laws are going to apply to the data differently. Yeah, and I, I just want to like name back to you because I hear one thing I hear you saying that I think is just so interesting is that. By over-collecting and storing data, you're actually growing this liability that you real you never realized you had. And that liability is both in the form of, well, maybe you're just breaking laws that you didn't realize you're breaking. So then you end up in a situation where you could have like a compliance issue. And then also you this liability is in the form of, is that data protected properly? And could it be 
reached and, and taken. You hit the nail on the head. So like if you have, you can have both a security breach and a privacy breach. So they, it sounds like they're going to be the same thing, but they, they may be different. You know, under HIPAA, you can have a privacy breach without having a, a somebody hacking to a system. It can be, you know, you can have that happen. You can be non-compliant with the rights of data subjects, thereby creating an issue where regulators come in. Or you can have a data breach where you're collecting information. Let's say you're collecting my first name, last name, date of birth, social security number, and address. Right there, any jurisdiction is going to call that personal data. Understand that privacy laws have kind of constricted what we what we think of as personal data. So like some privacy laws, it's just a name and a date of birth, like first name, last name, date of birth. So it depends on the jurisdiction you're in. That's why I say it's really important to understand the data you're collecting. But yes, you are absolutely 100% right. Depending on the data you're collecting, you could be a liability, basically a time bomb sitting in your system waiting for someone to uncover it, exploit it, and now you've got regulatory problems, you have you know problems with the state attorney general, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, you may get sued from, from the individuals whose information was compromised. To say that you're in a world of hurt is, is probably a gross understatement. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I know. I make everybody sad. <laughs> no, this is great because I think that it's opening business owners' eyes to the compelling need to do something about this from, from the outset. And okay, so you're a small business owner and you're realizing, oh, there's a high likelihood that I have that I have breached these laws. Nothing's happened yet. It hasn't been detected, but I'm probably non-compliant. What is the first step? Is there like a an equivalent of shredding paper when it comes to data where you where you offload data what what do you do next once you realize you're non-compliant so the the next step is to become compliant right if you think i'm doing I, i am potentially subject to some of these laws and i will tell you there's many many more laws than what i've enumerated here um not from necessarily a privacy perspective but from a data breach perspective there are 50 data breach notification laws in this country, right? So all 50 states have 50 different versions. The company is breached. You have to look and see what that what that looks like. There's 27 states that have what we would consider to be proactive requirements, right? You have to have a written security program. You have to test your, you know, you have to, there are certain things you have to have in place, compliance things that you have to have in place to demonstrate that you're doing the right thing when it comes to security. So you may not run afoul of a breach notification law, but in turn, you may run afoul of these proactive cybersecurity laws. So all of these things kind of collide when you have a data breach. So to avoid the problems or mitigate the problems, I will say, because there's really no avoiding. There's two categories of businesses, those who have suffered a breach and those who will suffer a breach because nobody is 100% safe. And so what I will say is to become to work on that is get somebody to help you. You're never going to figure this out on your own. I have in-house counsel that hire me to help them because they're like, they can read laws. They're lawyers. They know how to read statutes the same way I do. But they're like, I just don't know the information. I just don't know what I don't know. And it's just so much. And there's so, like I said, there's so many intersecting laws, state, federal, international that come together in this and intersect. And so it gets very confusing. So hire a professional, understand your data and start working on a compliance program. The worst thing you can do is wait till you're breached because 
that you will absolutely 100% no lie have a problem. There are companies that have cyber liability insurance. That's fantastic. I, I always tell my clients, get cyber liability insurance. That will run out, right? Like you can't, if you're breached and you hire forensic people and you have lawyers and you have public relations and you have this, and then you're hit with fines and you have to get your business back up. Where's, there's only so much money there the insurance company is going to pay out. And all, almost all cyber liability policies have a privacy aspect to it. So if you are hit with a regulatory fine, it will cover it, assuming there's still money there. So that's the other problem is a lot of times these businesses run out of insurance money and then they start paying for it out of pocket. And it's ridiculously expensive. It is cheaper to handle it on the front end than to deal with it after a breach, 100%. In terms of handling it on the front end, before a breach and also before getting caught, so to speak, before, <laughs> what do you do before you get caught to correct things so that there isn't a problem in the future? I, I hear what you're saying that like a breach to a certain extent is is almost inevitable, although oof, that's really hard to hear. It's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But being out of compliance isn't necessarily inevitable, right? If, if you no. have all of your practices in line, you're paying attention to the laws in every state and every country where you collect data from customers, um, you don't have to be out of compliance. So what do you do? So you were saying, you know, the first thing you do when you're out of compliance is you get into compliance. What does that process look like you're not you're not dealing with law enforcement you're not you're not dealing with a fine yet you're you're just having the realization that you haven't had good practices right so uh, most of my clients are in that situation they come to me because they say i can't sleep at night because i'm worried about this and again my clients are small businesses all the way up to big multinationals for profit not for profit they run the the gambit um, but they all have data. That's the common thing. And so first step we do is we figure out where the laws are coming from, right? So I talk to the people who are on the ground. It doesn't help for me to talk to the C-suite. I talk to the employees, the everyday employees who are transacting business. And I find out, how are you doing your job? Like, what are you collecting? Where do you store it? What does that look like? A lot of times I will have them actually like I will stand next to them while they're doing their job. Show me how you and you get into this system. Show me the fields of information that you're collecting. Step one. Step two, based on that, we then say to them, OK, you are collecting personal data in these jurisdictions. It qualifies as personal data in these jurisdictions. This is the stuff you need to be worried about right now. These are the laws. And then the second phase is these are the laws that you're not quite you're not quite subject to yet, but you look like you're kind of on track for that, right? Like sometimes, you know, you're collecting 50,000 pieces of personal data from California residents and you need to collect 100,000 pieces of data to be subject to the law. So you're on track. Let's start to map that out. And then step three is we say, okay, what are the security requirements? These are all the privacy requirements. These are the policies and procedures you have to have in place to work with that. And then we build out their program and we map it to, so like, for example, for HIPAA, you have to have an access control policy. Okay. So access control policy under HIPAA would also map to requirements under GLEBA, would also map to requirements under 
uh, New York Shield, the Massachusetts Standards, GDPR, CCPA. So that policy, we then say, is going to comply with every single one of these laws. Okay. Then we move go to the next one. These are the po- this is the policy. And what and what is that? Control. What is that? The example you just gave. What was that called? You just said I, I said access control policy. Access control. So what is an what is an access control policy? Access control policies are like so. Rebecca and Matt work for you know X corporation. Uh, Rebecca's in charge of marketing. Matt's in charge of HR. So Rebecca doesn't need access to HR data, so she doesn't have access to those systems. So it it basically puts you in like a little cocoon of this. You only access data that you need to do your job and nothing more. So if the system is breached, but it's my email system that's compromised, I shouldn't have any HR data and it should be segmented. So I can't, the hacker can't get into the HR data, at least not easily. Right. So those are like, those are general access control policies. And that, I mean, that's really high level. And then for each business, it has to be tailored because every single business is going to do things a little differently. What if I work at a really small company and I wear the marketing and the HR hat, right? So it depends on the business. It depends on the data collection practice. And then the policy should be built out to grow with that business. So as you're, as things are, so as you're scaling for a small business, large businesses, that's not usually the issue. They are usually it's, everybody needs to be talking to one another. They, every business has a different issue, has a different problem with how to deal with this. That's another thing. And everybody tries to slap it with the same band-aid. They're like, oh, it's data. So of course we all deal with it the same way. And it's like, no, you actually are like, like I always say businesses are like snowflakes. Every single, you could have two businesses. Like we both sell hamburgers, fast food, right? Chain, completely different way handle we handle data, different way we share data, different way our supply chains work. Everything is different. The only thing that's the same is we're making cheeseburgers, right? That's it. Right. So one data privacy policy and set of practices does not fit all. No. And it should be evolving so that as the business, because remember, I mean, businesses change the way they do things every single day. Right. So one day my marketing team may say to me, we're going to be pushing out this marketing initiative. And the next day they're like, actually, that didn't work. So we're going to change and do this. That change can affect the rights of data subjects. It can affect the data collection practice. So Every single time something changes or a decision is made, privacy and security have to be considered. I mean, you can see where this gets crazy, but if you have a practice in place and you start with it, which is a term called privacy and security by design and by default. So, and that's actually how it's set up in Europe. That's how businesses are supposed to set themselves up in Europe. If you start with it from that premise, then you're going to find it's much easier. Instead of trying to jam the square peg into the round hole, you've made those accommodations and everybody is aware of it. So you don't have anybody who's like, oh, I didn't even know we had a policy about that. Or I had no idea. Everybody's working together in this ecosystem where the business is doing and what it needs to do to survive and the privacy and security is working sympathetically with the business practice. From my perspective, that's my goal with all of my clients is that has to fit. So it doesn't feel like you're being suffocated by the privacy and security regs, but it's like, right. It's just baked in with you. Right. It's just, it's just trucking along with you. So you mentioned, you mentioned the European union and we do have listeners in the UK and in Europe. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the differences in the laws 
um, in the EU and perhaps the UK. I know that for me, as, as someone that has just sort of been aware of data security and data privacy by what I what what shows up in the headlines um, or what I hear on the news or, or read in the Times. I have a sense that the European Union, I'm not really sure about the UK, but definitely the European Union has more strict laws that have more proactively gotten companies to be cognizant of this and like you said to build it in from from the very beginning into the structure of their business. Can you talk a little bit about the way that those laws are operating in the EU and what we can learn from them maybe in the US? Sure. So Europe is much more, I will say, further down the pike in the world of data privacy. And it is not a surprise that Europe has this perspective of privacy. Their world wars were fought on their doorstep and continue to be to this day. And they are very wary of companies and government having too much visibility into the private lives of their citizens, understandably. So privacy is part of the fundamental rights in Europe. It's part of the charter of fundamental rights in Europe. So unlike the United States, Europe, privacy is one of their fundamental rights. It's like the right to free speech here. That's how I would kind of equate it. That's how they look at it. Like we are very proud of our right to free speech. They are very proud of their right to privacy. That they rely on that. It's so funny because I was literally just lecturing on this topic because I teach international data privacy at Drexel. So I this is like, I could just redo my student lecture. So that's just this very different way of viewing privacy. And the way the Europeans uh, have privacy has kind of evolved is originally it was done at the member state level. So every single member state had their own privacy, independent privacy law. But in 2016, they passed the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, and it went into effect May 25th of 2018. And the reason that it's such that's so important is that it created this umbrella of privacy laws that apply to each of the member states. So similar to our federal laws that we have here, this the GDPR, this overarching regulation it applies to all member states. And the purpose of it was to allow the free flow of data in between the member states. Unlike the US, where we look at these laws and regulations and see them as the albatross around the neck of business, the GDPR was actually viewed by the Europeans as basically allowing this to, to encourage business because they felt that if there was this transparency in the way that data was processed by companies and the government and things like that, people would be more willing to provide them with that information. And therefore, there would be this more, uh, much more of a free flow and exchange of data because people had control over the data. So under GDPR, people have rights. The one that's talked about the most is the right to erasure or the right to be forgotten. But there are uh, there's the right to rectification. There's the right to basically understand. There's this transparency, and what GDPR did was it allowed this. It, it really forced companies in Europe and abroad. It, this law does not just stay in Europe. It's what we we would say has an extraterritorial effect. It really changed the way we looked at data privacy globally because Europe is one of our biggest trading partners. So the United States was like, holy, what are we going to do now? Because they have this law. And so U.S. companies had to comply with this law because it's not just unlike California and Connecticut, where we're like, oh, if you are a resident of those states, then those privacy laws apply to you. Uh -uh. You don't have to be a European resident. 
you have to be a data subject located in the EU, which means when I fly, you know, in, in my head, well, it, I haven't been to Europe in a while, I dream going back to Europe. When I go back to visit, the GDPR applies to the data that I am that is collected about me while I am in the country. And so in the U.S., you don't have to be a European business. You just have to be doing business in Europe to have that law apply to you and collecting data on data subjects. And there's a whole jurisdictional analysis, which I'm not going to get into because I'm ex- excessively boring unless you're a nerd like me. <laughs> but that's another analysis that businesses have to do is does this law apply to me? And when Brexit happened, the UK, obviously now not in Europe anymore, what are we going to do with that? Is adopting a very similar GDPR-like law to the GDPR, so it'll 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 mirror, and will there there will continue to be an adequacy decision between the EU and the UK, in my opinion, and that's the other thing. So Europe doesn't like the way our government can look at the data of citizens or non-citizens more accurately, and so there has been this tension between the EU and US company, or the EU and US about this free flow of data. So originally we had the safe harbor provision, which allowed the free movement that was struck down by the European courts. Then we had the EU-US privacy shield that was struck down by the European courts. And recently the Biden administration has entered into a new version of the privacy shield to again, allow the movement of data between the EU and the US. And it appears it will also be challenged in European courts. So we'll have to wait and see. But as of right now, Whenever we move data between the U.S. and the EU, we have to do it under contractual obligations. So it's not as easy to do. So it's, it's again, complicated, very, very complicated. But but I'm following you. OK, so in that case, if I'm an American and I go on a trip to somewhere in the EU, the data that companies can collect while I'm in the EU is governed by the European Union's privacy laws. If a European citizen comes to the United States and they're using the internet here, what laws govern what can be collected and kept about that? Well, it would be domestic laws, right? Because if they're coming here, you're not reaching out to them, right? Or you could be a company that is actually actively working in Europe, doing things in Europe. In that instance, the GDPR would follow that data subject around because they're a resident of the EU. Right. They are going back to the EU and you're transacting business in the, in the European Union. So like one off, you're like, you know, a little pizza shop in New Jersey and an Italian comes over, right, and buys pizza and uses a credit card and you, you're collecting information about them. I don't know. They register for a free pizza and you get their name and everything. GDPR, not not a concern, right? If you are a big like hotel conglomerate, right, and you have hotels in the EU, or you're soliciting for the European residents to come visit you, you're like, hey, we're fantastic here in Newark, New Jersey, come visit us, right? Now you're reaching out to the European market and asking them to come over, you're collecting data about the European market. So that's when you have to do that analysis is to see, am I subject to the GDPR? Um, and what are my risk factors? You know, one person, probably not high. If you have an entire group of people who are purchasing from you and you're doing business with them in Europe, a different ballgame. The other thing I will mention, and what's really important, is that personal data in the EU is so broad. So it could be a name 
If you have my first name, last name, and email address, that's personal data. So it doesn't have, there's no social security number. Healthcare information is in a different realm, sexual orientation, union membership, all highly sensitive data. Just my name and the email address, just regular old personal data that requires protections and I'm entitled to the rights afforded me by the GDPR if it's subject, if my, I am subject to that law. So it's, like I said, it gets like, there are many layers. Yes, yes. This is an onion. <laughs> many, many, many layers. <laughs> so we we closed our last interview asking for you to provide words of wisdom and consolation to small businesses that that um, may have experienced a data breach because their their security wasn't up to par, or it may have been. And they still experience that, what you were calling kind of an almost inevitable data breach. When it comes to working with privacy laws preemptively or after a breach has occurred, what would you say, just to close for our small business owners, what are, what are your words of, of consolation and, and wisdom that you'd like to leave them with? So I don't remember what I said the last time. I'm sure it was, it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, right. <laughs> But uh, what I will say for small businesses is, is that you are not on your own. There are people out there that can help you. And don't be afraid to reach out for help. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I, don't, I don't believe in that. I believe in, in unbridled honesty. It's not easy. And these laws can be complicated. But you can get some assurances if you engage with privacy professionals. And I would strongly recommend you look not to the tech field in this regard, but you look to the legal field in this regard. And, and that actually goes for both cybersecurity and data privacy. There is a tech component to this and a communication that must occur between technology and the law. But lawyers are going to tell you what laws apply to you, how they apply, what you can do to meet those, um, those requirements. And so I wouldn't recommend just standing in court and saying, oh, look, I have standard contractual clauses drafted by my IT provider. They don't want to do it. I work with a ton of them. They're like, I get questions all the time. And I tell them, I'm not your lawyer. Go get a lawyer. But that's what I would say. Hire somebody to help you with this. You're not alone. It's complicated, uh, but it's also manageable if you're working with the right professionals. It's complicated, but it's also manageable. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for another extremely information-filled, eye-opening conversation. I know that this is going to be extremely helpful to our listeners. Um, it's been extremely helpful to me. So thank you so much for coming on the show. To our listeners, thank you for being here and be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn. You can connect with our hosts at Chloe Guidry-Reed and at Adam Moore. You can connect with me at Matt Colicello, C-O-L-A-C-I-E-L-L-O, and at Rebecca Rakoski, Rebecca, and then R-A-K-O-S-K-I. If you have enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, check our previous shows, and stay tuned for next time. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground 
www.thrivethinkingcoach.io. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.